This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Hydroflask, makers of the new Trail Series bottle, which lets you go farther with less weight. My name is John Cupid. I'm Director of Design at Hydroflask. John led one of the teams designing the Trail Series. Step one in their process was talking to customers to see what they wanted in a new bottle made specifically for hiking and backcountry adventures. You know, the first thing that we do with every project is we, we try to better understand our users. Hydroflask is known for their stainless steel bottles that keep liquids cold for up to 24 hours or hot for 12 hours. They're also extremely durable. Customers told John and his team that they love those features, but also that there was one thing they'd like to see improved, if possible. During uh, the conversations with them, what we learned was that they would like a lighter product. Then there was the improvement that people didn't realize they needed. We were watching people use our inline bottles out on the trail. You know, their hands are slippery from sweat. Uh, they're, sometimes they're holding the bottles along the body rather than the carry strap just to have a different hand position. And um, that's something we noticed. John and his team took all that back into the lab and came up with the Trail Series bottle, the lightest weight vacuum-insulated bottle on the market full 25% lighter than Hydroflask's previous wide mouth bottles. It's made from a thinner metal, but it's just as strong. The bottle is also narrower, so it's easier to hold in your hand and fits better in your pack. On the cap is a rubber handle with a flexible strap. We perforated the straps, gave us a couple of additional benefits, but uh, one was lighter weight and uh, it just an added level of performance there. We designed it basically so our fans could do more and go longer with less weight. The Hydroflask Trail Series bottle is available in 24 and 32 ounce sizes in a variety of colors. It weighs less so you can do more. Learn additional details and purchase yours at hydroflask.com slash outside podcast. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. It seems kind of strange right now, but not that long ago, people were very fired up about sports. And in the world of elite running, they were particularly fired up about shoes. At the end of February, the world was still planning for the Summer Olympics in Tokyo and the United States held its Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta. The dominant topic that day was which pair of shoes the top athletes were going to wear. Even if you don't follow running, chances are you know that this is all because of the Vaporfly, a shoe created by Nike that has completely upended the sport. A brief history of how that happened goes something like this. In early 2017, Nike announced a prototype running shoe that had a carbon fiber plate inside a super-thick, and super springy midsole. Called the Vaporfly, it was the cornerstone of a much-hyped bid to have a runner do what was still considered impossible, complete a marathon in under two hours. The Vaporfly was billed as improving a runner's efficiency by 4%, claim that was hard for serious runners and coaches to believe. Then, in May 2017, Kenyan runner Elliot Kipchoge nearly pulled it off. Wearing the Vaporfly on a racetrack in Italy, he finished a marathon in 2 hours and 25 seconds. It was short of Nike's goal, but more than 2 minutes faster than the world record. As many people saw it, the Vaporfly wasn't a breakthrough. It was a cheat, 
a form of mechanical doping that gave a runner an unfair advantage. Over the last few years, a lot has changed. Running records at numerous distances have been obliterated. There's been an arms race among shoemakers looking to duplicate Nike's success, even as they still call for new editions of the Vaporfly to be banned. Today, even with the Olympics and major athletic events postponed to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, the sport of running remains upside down, with the focus still on shoes instead of on who's wearing them. A couple weeks after the February U.S. Olympic trials, outside editor Chris Kyes caught on Alex Hutchinson, who writes the Sweat Science column for Outside Online, to talk about how exactly we got here and what it means for the future of the sport. Alex knows all this as well as anybody. He'd been invited to Nike's headquarters for a sneak preview of the Vaporfly a few months before the unveiling, and he's been reporting on what it's meant ever since. Here's Chris. Did you know what you were going there for? What, what did you know when you flew to their campus? Yeah, all, all I knew was that they were about to unveil uh, a big project, which became known as the Breaking Two Project, where they were going to uh, help or enable runners to run a sub-two-hour marathon. At least that was the goal. So it was a ludicrous goal because, you know, the world record was 202.57. So we knew they had to have something up their sleeve, but we didn't know what. And it was it was me and and uh, uh, one other reporter uh, Ed Caesar from Wired magazine and uh, you know uh, about ten thousand senior Nike executives and, and media relations people um, you know in in the top secret Nike headquarters and and they you know it was I, I, we were there for about three days and we saw a lot of a lot of things and they had a lot of wheels and moving parts that were going to try and help them get to the two hours but we were sort of waiting for the well to. To, for the other shoe to drop, so to speak, uh, that there had to be something big. That it wasn't just going to be they were going to have a more aerodynamic pair of shorts or whatever. And uh, and so eventually they they got around to telling us that yeah, one element of this big grand plan is well, we have a new shoe. And it, and they you know they they took us through some history. They showed us I think it was Alice and Felix's spike plate from the 2012 Olympics, which had been a custom made curved carbon fiber spike plate. And they said they'd been playing around with that technology, and they had this uh, this new model for a shoe that they thought was going to be pretty special. And where are you at this point? Are you like in a conference room, and they they have this shoe in front of you, or they have they not even revealed it yet? Yeah. So so day one, when they first presented this concept to us, we didn't see a shoe at all. They just showed us the the, the plate, Allison Felix's plate, and that was in a in a conference room somewhere on Nike headquarters. Uh, the next day, we uh, with with a whole bunch of fanfare, we got invited inside the Nike Sports Research Lab, which, from what we understood, not only do journalists never get to go to, only something like one percent of Nike employees have the right to go into. Like it was, you know, it was like going into an airport, except uh, or it was like going into Tel Aviv Airport or something like that. And, and uh, you know, we were, it was a, a very special situation, and we got to go in. And actually, see, we you know we met some of the the athletes who were part of the Breaking Two project, included Elliot, including Elliot Kipchoge. They were there to do some testing, and we were going to watch them do their testing. And one of the things they were going to do was test out this new shoe. Uh, they were testing out each of them were testing out three versions of the shoe with different stiffnesses of the carbon fiber plate to figure out which one was best for them. Uh, they let us try it on and, and jog a little bit, and it felt different. As soon as you pulled it on, you knew there was something different about this shoe. What did it feel like? It felt like you couldn't stand straight up in it. It felt like you had to lean forward in it or like you had to be like standing on a steep uphill in order to lean to stand straight up, if that makes sense. 
So you could feel that there was something in the shoe that was not parallel to the ground. And, you know, the power of suggestion is pretty powerful, but it felt like it wanted you to spring into motion and start running. It really, it really felt like it was pushing you forward. And this was the Vaporfly, or at least the as close as they got to it at that point, what would be the Vaporfly shoe? Is that right? Yeah, I think I think you could call it the Vaporfly. It, it was the Vaporfly in all but the styling, because, you know, the, the way it has come to market is it has a very different and distinctive look. But that's a that's a styling styling decision. It doesn't have to look that way. It could look just like an ordinary shoe. And that's what we were experiencing on that day in late 2016. So it didn't seem like they were making a huge deal, at least with you guys while you were present. But were they making a claim then, as they do now, that the shoe would boost your performance by up to 4%? Yeah, they told us right from the first, they told us this 4% statistic. Uh, now, they were also making other claims of a similar magnitude. They, For instance, that the the effect of drafting in a, in a well-optimized pack would be comparable. So they were making big claims, but in the context of many big claims. And they, they, they did say that this 4% figure was, uh, had been tested in an external lab, which I later found out was, was Roger Cram's laboratory at the University of Colorado, which is a very well-respected lab. So I was sort of of two minds when I, you know, after that first day or those first two days, which was, I believed, I, I, I knew that they wouldn't spend what what I sort of was estimating was going to be tens of millions of dollars on this breaking two project if they didn't think they had a legitimate chance of doing it. And of all the stuff they presented, I think it was five pillars of innovation, you know, nutrition and pacing and all these different things. And I listened to them all and I'm pretty familiar with with what's what at the cutting edge. And the only one that struck me as being really significant or the two that struck me as being potentially significant, significant were drafting and the shoe. So I knew they had to believe in the shoe. At the same time, we've we've heard hype from shoe companies on an annual basis, you know, since before I was born. So I was, you know, on its own, the fact that they said it's going to make you 4% more efficient didn't necessarily convince me. But the fact that they were willing to back it up by saying, and we're going to bet it all on getting someone close to a two-hour marathon made me think, hang on, th th this shoe might be for real. So now let's let's move forward a little bit. When did you start to see the kind of results athletes were having in these shoes that basically confirmed this boost, this the the magic nature of these shoes? You could argue that in in May of 2017, when Elliot Kipchoge ran two hours zero minutes and 25 seconds, that was the first real hint. That's and that's when the shoes made their their debut. It was in under artificial conditions, and he had you know, pacemakers and there was a, a pace car in front of him that some people thought was blocking the wind. So there were alternate explanations possible. This was the initial under two attempt, right? Yeah, the first breaking two race or the, the breaking two race. This was in 2017. So it wasn't a world record, but it was two minutes faster than or two and a half minutes faster than the world record. And so one possibility was that there was the shoe that, that worked, but we didn't know how much was the shoe and how much was the other factors. And you know, so we were sort of waiting what, to see what happens in a real marathon. And, and so that fall, Berlin is the, is the place where people run fast. Um, and Elliot Kipchoge went there and he ran fast, but it was, a, it was pouring rain that day. And so I can't remember exactly what his time was. It was maybe about 2.03 or something. Uh, he didn't break the world record. And so it was sort of like, well, he was fast, but it's not, nothing that hasn't been done before. And then the next fast marathon was London in the spring of 2018. And it was the hottest London marathon in history, actually. 
And so again, Kipchoge and some of the other guys ran very fast, but nothing that hadn't been done before. So it wasn't until, uh, I guess it was fall of 2018, October or September of 2018, when Elliot Kipchoge broke the world record, the official world record, he ran 201.39, and he didn't have all the other breaking two sort of pace car kinds of things. And so then it was like, wow, either the shoes are something super, super, super special, or Elliot Kipchoge is you know, superhuman. And I would say, so that takes us to the end of 2018. Then in 2019, it was like, it was undeniable. All of a sudden, a bunch of people that most even devoted fans of the sport hadn't even heard of started throwing down fast times on both the men's and women's side. And so through 2019, it was really building to then by the end of 2019, when the women's world record was shattered and, and Elliot Kipchoge in the Ineos race ran sub two and the, the men's and women's half marathon and 10K road records went down and it just seemed, and you know, national records by the, by the dozens were going down. So it was, it was a slow burn. It was, there was no one moment until I think it was by the end of 2019, it was like the last skeptics were like, okay, okay. I admit these shoes are really, really fast. So from that period, between 2016, when when you first learn about this, and 2019, where you kind of make your own confirmation that, and everybody else does that, yeah, I guess this shoe works. Were people starting to make claims that this was cheating or and complain about these shoes? Yes, I mean, I think the, the debate and the complaints that it was cheating started before people even knew what the shoe was. Uh, they started more or less as soon as Nike announced that they were going to have this breaking two project to try and break the two hour marathon. At first they didn't announce how they were going to do it. So there was lots of speculation. And as soon as they then put out the press release that said, Oh, by the way, we have this new pair of shoes. that's pretty fancy. People said, well, that's it. They're cheating. Whatever they're doing, it doesn't matter what it is. We don't even know what's in the shoe, but it has to be cheating. If it's going to allow, if it's going to enable someone to go under two hours, then it must be cheating. And, and, and once they knew what it was, they said, okay, well then it's the carbon fiber plates. It's the cheat. Um, but, but I think the, the assumption that it was cheating started right away and was sort of based on the, the magnitude of the claim more than the specifics of what was in the shoe. And at this time, as people are starting to make the cheating claims, um, and these records are being broken during that time, the IAAF or what's now world athletics, the governing body, they didn't make any changes to their rules. Did they make any announcements about the shoe? They made one change to their rules, which was that you, you had it. You had to any shoe used had to be reasonable, available to all in the spirit of the universality of athletics. And <laughs> what I read, that. Yeah, yeah, what I read that to mean was that you couldn't use prototypes anymore, which I think it doesn't ban the carbon fiber plate shoes, but it avoids the situation like you had at the 2016 Olympics. And for that matter, at the 2016 U.S. marathon trials, where you have a few runners who have shoes that are probably a couple minutes better than anyone else's shoes, and nobody even knows about it. And that, I think we can all agree that uh, that's not a desirable scenario. Whether it's illegal or cheating is another question, but it's not desirable. You don't want to have one, you know, a small group of runners having a, a weapon like that. And so I read this rule that to, to mean that pro, the, the prototype era was over. You had to just race in, in stock shoes. Nobody else seems to, at least nobody in the elite sports world seems to have read it that way because athletes, not just from Nike, again, from all companies, continued to wear prototypes in races and nobody did anything about it. 
and and nobody uh, being the the governing body did not the, enforce that rule the governing body did, did did nothing there were no sanctions i heard indirect you know the rumors heard i heard from someone who heard someone who was on the committee saying oh yeah we didn't intend it to ban prototypes it was just you couldn't bring a new type of shoe onto the market which i, I don't even know what that means it, it was a toothless rule and it served to almost sort of emphasize the toothlessness of what world athletics were doing they were producing rules that were essentially meaningless and then not even uh, enforcing the meaningless rules. So now we know the shoe is effective, clearly. Um, as you said, in the 2016 uh, <clears throat> Olympic trials, you called the shoe, you know, two to three minutes faster, which is enormous. So what is it about the shoe? You mentioned carbon plates. What do we know about what's inside? And do we know why it works? Or are we still like cram saying we know the shoe works, but we don't have any idea why? Yeah, so there's three basic parts to the shoe, uh, or at least to this type of shoe. Uh, one is this stiff carbon fiber plate that's embedded in the midsole. Uh, and the midsole itself is a very thick midsole. So it's, it's you know, not quite platform shoes, but we're talking in the neighborhood of, of you know, let's say an inch to an inch and a half. So it doesn't look like your typical racing shoe. Uh, so that's that thick midsole is significant because when when we talk about spring-loaded shoes, people are thinking about the carbon fiber plate. But in fact, every shoe has a spring, and that is the midsole of the shoe. You have this foam midsole. When you land, it gets compressed, and when you take off, it springs back and kind of pushes you forward and saves you some energy. And the thicker the the midsole you can have, the the more energy, it's like having a bigger battery. You can store more energy with each stride and, and give more back to yourself. So that's what, one of the big factors that helps efficiency. And the third factor, so you've got the carbon fiber plate, the thick midsole, and what, it, what allows this to, to be built without making it totally clunky is that you've got a new foam in the midsole, uh, a, a foam that is lighter than any foam that's ever been used in a shoe before, which means you can have a thick foam without feeling like you're wearing bricks on your feet. And it's also more resilient, which means that when you land on it and it springs back, it gives you more energy. Typical shoes are made or have been made with EVA, which gives you about 65% of the energy. It gives you back about 65% of the energy you put in. Uh, about six or seven years ago, Adidas came out with a, a, a foam called Boost which was at the time the best foam ever. It was light and it gave you back about 75% of the energy you put in, so 10% better. And Nike's Vaporfly came out with a foam they called Zoom X, which is another 10% better. So it was giving you back about 85% of the energy you put in. So you've got this big thick layer of light and resilient foam. And it, if, you just, if you just try and run on a huge stack of ultralight foam, it's gonna be very unstable, but the carbon fiber plate gives you some stability and keeps your foot in a position that reduces the amount of energy you're wasting. So there's a lot of debate about exactly how these things work together and how much the, the plate makes a difference versus the foam, whether the plate is saving energy by keeping your big toe from bending and things like that. I think my reading is that the most significant thing is that is enabling you to take advantage of this big stack of thick, lightweight foam. And as you say, none of those individual pieces of the, the shoe, including even the, the carbon uh, plate are necessarily new. We've seen all of these things in a shoe before, if not the exact foam that Nike is using. That's what every company has been trying to do is make a lighter and more effective foam. But but none of these individual pieces are, are brand new. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because 
there was the perception that, oh my God, they put a carbon fiber plate in the shoe. The humanity, how could they dare do this? Well, I, 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 a friend of mine recently dug up some, some old Brooks ads from the early 90s because Brooks introduced a full-length carbon fiber plate uh, that they called the Propel back in 1989 is when they introduced it. They had two shoes called the Fusion and the Fission with carbon fiber plates. Fila in the 90s, 1990s had a carbon fiber plate that Paul Turgat, the world Re marathon record holder, ran in. Uh, and then Adidas is the one who, who got closest to what, what Nike did. Uh, they had a curved carbon fiber plate that they called the Pro Plate. And by some accounts, at least, Haley Gaber Selassie set a marathon world record in a shoe with the Pro Plate in it. So you can see that there's a genealogy of where these things come from, that, that uh, the carbon fiber plates didn't come out of nowhere. And the foam, exactly, I mean, the Boost foam was, was better than what had come before that. Before that, And ZoomX was a little better than Boost. And, and now all the other companies are playing around with different foams, trying to find the lightest and most resilient. But somehow, you know, and, and, and I think credit is due that uh, the, the designers at Nike found a combination, found the, the, just the right, the angle, the thickness and everything that, that wasn't, you know, 1% better or 2% better because there have been lots of examples of claims of 1% or 2% before. In fact, the, the Adidas carbon fiber plate, there's peer-reviewed literature that was published in journals saying that it makes you 1% faster. No one cared. This was 10, you know, 15 years ago. Nobody cared that this carbon fiber plate made you 1% more efficient. But Nike got it in a way that it was 4%. And all of a sudden, you can't ignore 4%. That's, 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 it's too big to, uh, to ignore. Put that in perspective for us. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about cheating and people claiming that this is cheating. So how does 4% compare to actual cheating using, uh, let's say, EPO? Well, yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I have a great comparison uh, at the tip of my fingers because I just read a study that analyzed the results of Russian women's distance runners from, I think it was 2009 to 2017. And basically what they were looking at is um, what happened when they introduced the biological passport, which is a new method of blood doping that makes it much harder to, to, to blood dope. Uh, and what they found is on average, the, the Russian women, as soon as in 2012, when this when sanctions started to be applied with the biological passport, across the board, Russian women's middle distance runners got about two to three percent slower, uh, with a range of about one to four percent slower. And so, what the lead author of that study told me is, yeah, I take that as an estimate that blood doping is about gives you on average about two to three percent uh, gain in your race times. Now, when we talk about the shoes, we're talking, let's say, 4%, although the latest iterations of the shoes I've heard are more like six to, uh, 7 to 8%, so it may be even bigger than that. But even if you just stick to 4%, that's inefficiency. So you, you burn 4% less energy. That, by some calculations, for an elite marathoner, should make you about 2.5% faster. So almost identical to what, you, what you're apparently getting from blood doping uh, prior to the, the the institution of the biological passport. Wow. So this is significant. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's it's a race winner. It's a it's a, you know, obviously you can't go from last to first. I'm not going to go win a marathon just cuz I I put on shoes like this. But in in a competition among equals, uh the person with the the 4% better shoe is going to win 99% of the time. So can you win without the Nike's right now? You can, you can, and and we don't we don't have to look far for that. The the U.S. Uh, Olympic marathon trials were uh, you know a, a week ago, and uh, on the men's side it was I think it was nine of the top ten finishers were wearing a version of the Nike Vaporfly, but on the women's side the picture was quite different. 
the winner was, if I'm remembering correctly, was wearing a, a Hoka shoe with a carbon fiber plate, but it was a Hoka shoe. And only one of the top, I think the third place finisher, uh, um, Sally Kipiego, was wearing a, a Nike Vaporfly model. But most of the top finishers on the women's side weren't. And that isn't because the Nike shoes don't work for women or anything like that. But, you know, it's it's it's, it's a couple things. One is it's just a question of who, which top runners happen to be sponsored by which companies. Uh, and it's also a function of other companies introducing shoes that are, you know, everyone had a shoe with, or almost everyone had a shoe with some sort of carbon fiber plate and foam in it. So it's no longer 4% versus 0%. It's 4% versus, we don't know, 2%, 3%, 4%. No one has released the data. But the other companies have closed the gap. We'll be right back. Earlier, we heard from John Cupid, head of design at Hydroflask, about how the all-new lightweight Trail Series bottle lets you go further. A lighter bottle was what Hydroflask users said they wanted. But as John tells it, he wasn't sure he could deliver. I have to be proud of the fact that we could reduce the weight. That was a challenge that we didn't know we could solve at the beginning. Hydroflask engineers tested numerous blends of professional-grade stainless steel until they found a unique mix that allowed for the thinnest possible walls of a bottle without compromising its durability or temperature retention. You know, it was a back and forth of building lots of prototypes, testing in the lab, testing out in the trail, uh, in the real world, you know, taking them on hikes, seeing how they perform there. And we did lots of drop tests. We did, did lots of impact tests to make sure the, uh, the durability was what our customers expected. Along the way, they looked for every possible way to save weight, which is why Hydroflask completely re-engineered the wide-mouthed lid, all the way down to the lugs. The lid construction itself, you know, we have a hollow surface in the top part of the lid that made the lid more compact. That reduced weight. We perforated the straps, the lugs. We changed out the material from stainless steel to aluminum and then hollowed them out, cored them out. All of those things that we looked at helped in reducing the weight by about 25%. The Hydroflask Trail Series bottle weighs less, so you can do more. Learn additional details and purchase yours at hydroflask.com slash outside podcast. At the 2019 Chicago Marathon, the top 10 finishers in the men's race all wore vapor flies. It was starting to feel like for runners to even hope to be competitive, they would have no choice but to tie on a pair of the shoes. Except there was already a newer, faster model. Just the day before Chicago, Elliot Kupchoge achieved the impossible, running a marathon distance in one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. He was wearing another Nike prototype, this one dubbed the Alpha Fly, which rumors have suggested gives runners as much as an 8% improvement in efficiency. For many runners, Alex Hutchinson included, the intense focus on shoe technology and away from athleticism is a big problem. Okay, so you mentioned the Alpha Fly, which is Nike's newest version of, of this technology. But as you have written, uh, when this debuted at the second breaking two attempt, which was a success. This thing doesn't look anything like the Vaporfly. I think you called it a moon boot. Yeah, I'll confess that, you know, everyone reaches their breaking point at different different <laughs> moments. And for me, this was, I guess, last last October watching, you know, in the middle of the night watching Elliot Kipchoge run towards a, a sub two hour marathon distance exhibition race. Uh, exciting moment. But for me, it was stuck in my craw a little bit because 
I looked at the shoes and I was like, yeah, okay, that's a bridge too far. These, <laughs> they have these bizarre pods in them and they look like they, I mean, they don't look like platform shoes. They look like platform shoes on top of platform shoes. They're just, uh, you know, you know, they, they, they seemed to me the, 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 the straw that just broke the camel's back, especially if, as the rumor, if the rumors are true that they're roughly twice as good, you know, they're giving you seven to 8% instead of just 4% compared to what shoes used to give us. Uh, now, as it turns out, uh, you know, it may be that I'm reacting more to the styling to the, than to the stub substance because apparently they're actually not all that much taller than the previous version, the next percent. They're just styled in a very different way that makes them look more bizarre. And so I shouldn't I shouldn't get too upset about the the, the style as opposed to the substance. But I, I have to admit that I, I looked at them and I thought this cannot be where we're headed in this sport. <laughs> you know, these are crazy. Well, and I think even if you are wrong and, and what's inside the shoe isn't fundamentally that different. You're getting at a point here. You're you're a big running fan and suddenly these performances are are starting to rub you the wrong way. Like maybe maybe this isn't the way the sports should be going and 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 it's too reliant on the technology and actually the run itself. Uh, yeah, and I think you know there's been people who've been saying that obviously since the, the day the Vaporfly was announced and and I understood I understood that but I was always I tended to err on the side of, you know what, it's maybe not what I would choose if, if you know, I, I would like us to all be very purist and traditionalist, but I don't see any rationale for for standing in the way of what may be a, a pretty cool shoe that has benefits, not just for elites, but for the rest of us. I think what part, yeah, beyond the styling element, my sense was that Nike dropped the bomb on the world with its paper fly. There was some carnage. There were some races won that maybe shouldn't have been won, like at the 2016 Olympics. Then we started to pick up the pieces. All the other companies realized, okay, this is a real thing. It doesn't look like there's going to be any rules. Let's start working on our own versions. And we were approaching a moment where it felt like parity was coming back. It's never a perfectly level playing field. That doesn't exist. But it was going to be a case where we're getting back to the point where you don't stand on the starting line and say, well, that dude's not going to win because he doesn't have the latest shoe. And then all of a sudden, just when I thought we were at that point, the alpha fly comes along and now we're back to square one where even the people, if you know, if they had the, the original vapor fly or these competing ones, well, they don't have a chance because they don't have the latest shoe. So, and, and if that happens, then my, my fear then became, well, maybe the same thing's going to happen next year and the year after. And we're going to be in the age of endless shoe wars where who your shoe sponsor is becomes, uh, you know, the Formula One model as opposed to the NASCAR model where it's it's an equipment makers and it's an engineer's challenge as well as a, a runner's challenge which is exactly when you should have a governing body step in and in the winter they do step in last uh either january or early february they they announced some new rules did did it change anything that remains to be seen so they announced these rules and i after the alpha fly was introduced last fall it, in this exhibition race there was a lot of talk, including a proposal in the British Journal of Sports Medicine saying, all right, we need to get something. What's the simplest way to regulate it? Banning carbon fiber plates is sort of missing the point. Why don't we just limit the thickness of shoe midsoles? Why don't we say that the shoe can only be X high? And there was so and I thought that was a great idea. And I started to I wrote about that a little bit. And the question was, how high do you make the limit? And it's hard to get reliable numbers on how high these shoes are. You, there were all sorts of uh, 
you know, differing ideas. And one number that was suggested was 31 millimeters because that was the original Vaporfly. Another one was 35 millimeters because that was how high Hoka's biggest shoe was, which was the thickest shoe on the market before the Vaporfly. And then there was, well, maybe we should make it 30, you know, six or 37 or even 38 millimeters because that's reportedly what the next percent which was the second version of the Vaporfly was, and a bunch of people that already set world records in the next percent. So in order to avoid this sort of awkward situation of, oops, they set a world record in an illegal shoe, let's make it 38. So then the rule came down, and sure enough, it was a limit on height, but it was 40 millimeters. Now, two millimeters doesn't seem like a big difference. You say, well, 38, 40 millimeters, whatever. They did the job. At least we're not going to see you know, the Alpha Fly, that abomination showing up in competition. Then four days later, four or five days later, Nike announces... Here's our alpha fly. Oh, and by the way, guess what the stack height is for the men's size eight and a half, which is the reference size on which the, the measurements are made. The stack height is 39.5 millimeters. So it comes in under 40 millimeters. And so there were a lot of people, including me, who woke up that morning thinking, wow, we live in a world of amazing coincidences. What a, you know, what a, what a fantastic stroke of luck for, for Nike. So, um, so the alpha fly is, is legal for this summer's Olympics. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's, maybe that's going to, maybe the alpha fly is where it stops and we can all learn to live with that as time goes on. Uh, or maybe there'll be more innovation within that 30, within that 40 millimeter window. And, and, and we'll wish that the, you know, I guess I certainly wish it had been, it had been a little bit tighter down at sort of the 36 millimeter mark or something like that. But it's hard to know whether any of those 40 millimeters make a difference or whether, as some people argue, no one was going to go to 50 millimeters anyway. And just for context, 50 millimeters is about two inches. No one was going to go there anyway because it gets impossible to run in it. So maybe it was going to be self-limiting anyway. So who knows whether the rules actually make much difference. So we know what the the edges of the rules are now for, for shoes. And as you said, it's that uh, 40 millimeter height. And so much of the focus has been on these records, but we haven't really talked much about how this is affecting the amateur ranks. Um, you know, for the average person trying to qualify for Boston, say, are you crazy not to get a pair of Vaporflies? I wouldn't say you're crazy not to get a pair of Vaporflies, but I would say if you don't, or or a or a competing shoe, if you don't, you're you you know you're you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. Now, maybe maybe that that racing disadvantage will be offset by your sense of moral superiority. Uh, you know, everyone has to make their own, their, their, their own uh, bargains with the devil. And, and, and it's not just about shoes. We make these bargains with all sorts of things, whether it's taking caffeine or beet juice or, you know, whatever the situation is. Um, but, yeah, I think there's no doubt that the, this uh, this effect has or the effects of these shoes have, has trickled down to all sorts of competitive levels. I, I had a friend who was trying to set the over 50 Canadian half marathon record um, uh, last fall. And, you know, he knew what he had to do. I think it was, the record was 115 or something. And then a, a few weeks before, all of a sudden, out of the blue, someone ran 113, you know, it took two minutes off the record. And he's like, how the heck did that happen? And, uh, you know, it was someone who was wearing the vapor flies. And then he went to his goal race and he ran 115 and he didn't even win his age group. There were there, another someone, someone else completely different also ran 113 in the over 50 category for this half marathon. And he looked through the weight race photos and he, he, I think he was 15th in the race. And he said 14 of the people in front of him or 14 of the 15 people in front of him were wearing vapor flies. So, you know, we're talking local races, you know, in the over 50 categories, people are like, what the heck is happening? And, and for sure, Boston qualifying times and things like that are going to reflect the, uh, 
the, the prevalence of, of, of these new shoes. So are you running in them? So I have a pair of the original Vaporfly 4%. Uh, I, I got them as a review copy or a view, review pair actually just before I moved over to Outside Magazine back in 2017. And they arrived just when I, when I had already decided to go. So I was writing for Runner's World at the time. I got them from Runner's World. I couldn't review them for Runner's World because I'd moved to Outside. I couldn't review them to, to out, for Outside because I got them from, from Runner's World. So I said, I'm just going to put these in a box and I, I'm not going to run in them. I'm not going to do anything because I, I, I had a ton of ambivalence about what, what does running mean to me? What is, what, you know, why am I heading out there on weekends to, to, to race? It, you know, what, is, what does it mean to me if I'm faster than last week or last year, if effectively it's just because I put on a different pair of shoes? At the same time, I love running faster. So there was, there was you know, definitely a large, uh, another voice in my head that was quite loud saying, uh, you know, set, settle down, Mr. Mr. Precious, and just get out there and, and uh, you know, run as fast as you can. So I eventually, maybe a, a year later, I ran a 5K in them because I was just, I thought, you know, I've written a billion articles about the Vaporfly. I should know how they feel in a race. That's how I justified it to myself. Yeah. And <laughs> I, love, so, I love seeing how the inside of your mind works. Right? Yeah, my, my therapist would have a field day, but, but uh, um, you know, so I ran one, one race in them and uh, they felt cool. I have no idea, you know, because I didn't run a lot of races that spring, I don't know whether they made me faster or slower, but I assume I'm a data guy. I believe they did. And they've been sitting there ever since. And, and I admitted this uh, to someone the other day. I said, I, I, I'm, I'm signed up to run the London Marathon uh, next month. And I had sort of decided in my head that I'm going to run, I'm going to, I'm going to get them out and I'm going to, I'm going to run the London Marathon in them because I'm a, I'm a middle distance guy. Marathon's a long way from me. It doesn't feel good. And, and one of the things that people have said about the vapor flies is yeah yeah maybe they make you a couple percent faster sure but they also help you your, make your legs feel so much better at the end of a long hard run let's say of a, of a marathon they help you deal with the pounding this is what i hear from a ton of people they're like you, you'll never pry the, the vapor flies from my cold dead hands because they allow me to run more as a you know an over 50 runner than i have in 20 years and my it, they just allow my legs to deal with the pounding and i thought I could really use that. I'm not in great marathon shape. My buildup hasn't gone well. I would love to be able to enjoy the experience of running London without sort of hobbling for the last 10 miles like, like I might otherwise. So again, the, the, here's my twisted logic. Uh, but I've had a few people call me out on that and say, well, that's the point of a marathon. You, you know, a marathon is supposed you to be hard. Suffer. Yeah, exactly. Why, why are you trying to take the suffering out of the marathon? And I don't have a good answer for that. I, so I'm, I, I don't present this with a, a, a tidy moral at the end saying, so therefore I know what I'm going to do. I, I think I'm probably still going to, you know, if London takes place, uh, given all that's going on these days, I will probably run in them, but uh, if it helps any of the critics, I'll, I'll feel guilty. So that, that that's something, I guess. <laughs> we'll know we'll know here at Outside that your time is tainted. <laughs> exactly, I, I, it will not go on the Outside leaderboard. Alex Hutchinson writes Outside's Sweat Science column about the science and endurance of adventure. You can follow his reporting at outsideonline.com slash sweat science. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Hydroflask, makers of the new Trail Series bottle, which lets you go farther with less weight. Learn more about it and purchase yours at hydroflask.com slash outside podcast. We'll be back next week.